Good evening, everyone. Uh-oh, that didn't translate very well, did it? I think uh, some of our PowerPoints, both Adams and I, are not translating well today. That's all right. Um, hopefully, I won't have all black screens. Um, before I get started with the lesson, I know some people have asked about my tie, and it's uh, flavorful. Um, it's, it's a South African flag. I've worn it before, but if you're wondering, that's what it is. That's the, the craziness of the tie. So this evening, the title of the lesson is the song, No One Sings. So you may be wondering, what is the song that no one sings? So if you're in your Bibles, turn them to the Song of Solomon. When's the last time anyone in here has sung the Song of Solomon? Probably nobody. I actually looked up if, there, if somebody has actually put music to the Song of Solomon. Uh, and you can find some songs out there called the Song of Solomon, but they are not the Song of Solomon. I don't know exactly what the point was, but we don't really have music to the Song of Solomon. We have the words, the lyrics, but it is a song, and so I imagine at some point there were, there were musical notes to this song, or it, it was sung at least with some kind of, of tune to it, but as we look at the Song of Solomon, you know, I, I, had, to, I had to be creative with, with, a, with the sermon title, because... The, the real sermon title um, for, for tonight is not the song No One Sings. That's the abbreviated version. Uh, the real title for the song is PG Themes and Lessons About Commitment from the Song of Solomon That Won't Make You Blush and, blush and That Will Allow Me to Keep My Job. So, but the song No One Sings sounds better. Um, but it also does have to do with what we're talking about tonight. Uh, but I'll, I'll leave that up there for now. So, the Song of Solomon, we're going to look at themes of commitment from the Song of Solomon, but we're going to do a little bit of introduction tonight before we get into uh, that part of it. Uh, surprise, it's written by Solomon, but you didn't know that. Um, but before we get to Song of Solomon, I want to read for you a passage from 1 Kings chapter 4. It's 1 Kings 4, verses 29 through 32. It says this, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, and Calcol, and Darda, and the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Now, a lot of us may have heard that verse because it talks about Solomon being so wise, but the part right after that, he also spoke 3,000 proverbs, we have a lot of those. And his songs were 1,005. Solomon, blows my mind, wrote 1,005 songs, which is pretty extensive. But then go to Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. The Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, is not just a song Solomon wrote. It is his best song that he wrote. He considered it his best. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I just wanted you all to see that, that the Song of Solomon is the greatest of a thousand and five songs that Solomon wrote. Now, in the Song of Solomon, there are three main characters. Um, there, there are other characters, but there's three main ones that, that come about a lot in the book, or in the song. It's not a book, it's a song. Uh, the main one, obviously, being Solomon, is, is one of those. There is a woman who does not have a name. We'll just call her the woman for now. And then there is a group of people that appear in the song every once in a while, and we're just going to call them the others. 
Uh, in your Bibles, you may have some descriptions that say this is where, you know, where the others are talking. And so that's kind of the third group of characters in the song. Song of Solomon is a song of Hebrew poetry. There's a lot of symbolism, which means sometimes you have to tread a little carefully when interpreting the song. Now, Solomon also wrote Proverbs, and we know that Proverbs is about wisdom in, in a lot of different areas. And Song of Solomon is also about wisdom, but in a very specific area. Because every word of the Song of Solomon is about love between a man and a woman. Now, when I say that it's about love between a man and a woman, I mean that it is about everything that premarital and marital love entails. Because of that, the Song of Solomon has become the song that no one sings. Or it has become the song that everyone changes the lyrics to make it more digestible. The song makes a lot of people uncomfortable because some of the subject matter in it, that being a lot to do with uh, sex and sexuality, makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And that is a significant part of the song. And so people will skip over this part of the Bible, they won't teach it, or they'll maybe change the meaning to make it more digestible. But I want to be clear from the very beginning as we jump into kind of an overview of this book. The Song of Solomon is not an allegory for Christ's relationship with the church. There is symbolism in the Song of Solomon, but there is also you know, stuff that's very real, very, this is how it is, this is what happened. Uh, it, it, there's symbolism, but there is also just, just story, just what actually happens. And so the symbolism, along with the stuff that's not symbolism, is about the love between a man and a woman. Does that involve sex? Yes. Does that involve other stuff? Absolutely. So that being said, there are a few reasons why I think the Song of Solomon should be studied, is worth being studied, and should be taught. First and foremost, this one will surprise you. It is God's Word, so it should be studied. All right, we know that. It is God's Word passed along to Solomon through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's why, out of the 1,005 songs that Solomon wrote, it is his best one, because it is inspired but another reason why I think that we should talk about the Song of Solomon is everyone else is talking about sex. We live in a culture, and if you're in this culture, you live in the American culture, and we all do, you've already heard a lot about sex and sexuality. And your children, if you have children, have probably heard about sex long before you as the parent had the talk with them. Our culture is saturated in it. All we hear in the world is think this about sex or believe this about sex or do this for sex. But then we come to fellowship with our Christian family, and no one will talk about sex. And so let me ask you this. At that point, who is shaping our view of sex and sexuality? The world who is teaching us everything they want us to believe, or the church who won't say a word about it? And the problem is no one teaches the truth about sex and sexuality outside of Christianity. You can only learn the truth about sexuality inside Christianity. And that's why the Song of Solomon is so important. But there's a third reason, and this is kind of the focus of tonight's lesson, why we should study the Song of Solomon. Because it's not all about sex. There are other lessons to be learned. It's about love between a man and a woman. And so there are other lessons we can learn from this amazing song. And one of the things that I want to focus on tonight is the themes of commitment within the Song of Solomon. Now, I got to hear back in the spring a, a lesson or a class, really, uh, from David Shannon, who, who did a class on the Song of Solomon, and he summarized the book this way. This is not word for word, but this is basically his thoughts. 
He summarized it this way. The song begins with the man and woman being attracted to each other. They spend more time together. They eventually want to share all of themselves together, but have to practice restraint because they aren't married. They eventually have a wedding, which is followed by a honeymoon. After the honeymoon, they resolve some conflict, strengthen their marriage and sexual relationship, and show us a beautiful description of commitment. And that was basically his summary of the song. So let's talk about it. Where, what are the themes of commitment in the Song of Solomon? Well, one of them, one of the first ones, is a commitment to love. Commitment to love allows you to see the beauty in spite of imperfection. And commitment to love allows you to extend grace in spite of insecurity. If you're in Song of Solomon, and hopefully you're in chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. This is the woman talking. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. So let's just break it down verse by verse. What, what is this saying? Well, verse 2. The woman is showing she's interested in Solomon. They aren't married yet, but... She wants to kiss him. She's falling in love with him. Verse 3, she finds him outwardly attractive through what? His fragrance. God is telling us that we should smell good. No, not really. But the senses are the way to the heart, are they not? Including the way you smell. Uh, we notice people first through our senses, whether that's a visual or the way somebody smells, something like that. That's how she notices Solomon. Your name, that part, refers to his character. She finds not only is he outwardly attractive, she finds him to be inwardly attractive too. Solomon takes care of his character as well as his physical attributes. Solomon is such a good and attractive guy that the woman notices that even other women are noticing him and want to have a relationship with him as well. He's just that guy that many women would want to be in a relationship with. He's good on the inside and the out. And then verse 4, she wants to spend time with Solomon. You know, people who are, are dating uh, usually want to spend time together. And it talks about the chambers. And some people take that as, oh, they're, they're having sex before marriage. No, that does not mean that. Solomon has welcomed her into his palace, probably for a place where they can have time together. I mean, he's the king. He can't just go out in public and expect to have quality, you know, alone time with someone. And so they're having quality time together. And then at the end of verse 4, we see the others, that third group of characters um, in the song. They're complimenting Solomon. They echo the fact that he is worth being liked. He's worth being pursued. Now I'll get to verse 5 and 6. Now it gets interesting. A woman says, I am very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Verse 5 and 6, the woman starts to show some of her insecurity. She's worried that Solomon won't find her attractive because she's really tan. So how does that work? Because today that's a good thing, right? Well, back in the day, having light skin, back in this time, light skin and being heavier was actually considered more beautiful because that meant that you were wealthier, you did not have to work out in the fields as much. It meant that 
you had maybe an inside job or, or you could be inside while other people worked in the fields. And if you were poor, you had to work in the fields, which meant you were probably not as heavy and you were, you were tanner. And so she's nervous that she or that Solomon won't find her attractive because of her physical appearance. Now, this part is crucial to the rest, the rest of tonight. The reason that she is tan and dark, she says, is because her brothers were angry and forced her to work outside to help provide for the family. Now, there's nothing said about her father, but a lot of commentators will say that her father is probably not in the picture, probably dead, uh, probably not alive anymore. So her brothers are in charge of the family. And in order to, to keep the family together, to make ends meet, they have had to, to force her to work in the field to provide for the family. And she worked hard. She did a good job. But in keeping up the family's vineyard, she couldn't keep up her own vineyard. She wasn't able to take care of her physical appearance the way she wanted to. And that ruined her beauty for her. And now she's insecure. Will Solomon give her a chance? We'll skip down to verse 8. We finally get Solomon speaking for the first time in the song. This is what he says in verse 8. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tent. Solomon finally speaks, and the very first thing he does is extend his grace and show his love to her. He calms her insecurities by calling her the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. Solomon didn't see her imperfections, and his love for her only highlights her beauty and his graciousness um, to, that motivates him to say what he says about her beauty. You know, King Solomon could have chosen anyone in the kingdom. He was the king. And unfortunately, as we know, King Solomon did choose everyone in the kingdom uh, later on, as the story goes. But I would like to believe that at this point in Solomon's life, um, there, there's no, we don't know what time period that this is. But from every account, it seems that Solomon is in a pretty good spiritual condition at the time of this song. Um, and so Solomon could have had anybody, right? He could have had anyone he wanted to um, who he was interested in. And he could have had the, the heaviest, the you know, palest skinned woman he wanted. But instead he finds interest in this thin, tan girl who by all societal standards is not beautiful. But because of his commitment to love her, the way he saw it, he did have the most beautiful woman in the nation. And that's what he tells her. Not only did his commitment let him see that, but he wanted the woman to know what he saw in her. He wasn't going to let her dwell in her imperfections. So he encourages her. She isn't just beautiful. She's the most beautiful among all women. And as you read the Song of Solomon, the woman's confidence actually does increase because of Solomon's loving and gracious words. Committed love encourages where there are insecurities. Committed love sees beauty where there are imperfections. Now, that does not apply to maybe spiritual imperfections. Those, of course, need to be attended to and addressed. Uh, but the physical things, the things that don't matter, but sometimes matter to us, love doesn't see those things. It encourages and it offers grace. And you know, when you became a Christian, you committed to loving everyone spouse or otherwise. Matthew 22, verse 36 through 39 says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That means we don't focus on people's imperfections. 
We don't call out people's insecurities. As Christians, we must be committed to seeing the beauty in every single individual because they are created in the image of God. As Christians, we must be committed to offering grace and encouragement to every individual because all of us have insecurities and, and things that we wish were different about ourselves. But Christians offer grace where the world offers hatred. But there's another, another theme of commitment in the Song of Solomon, and that is a commitment to holiness. Commitment to holiness is a safeguard against sin and should be the foundation of any relationship. Back up a verse in Song of Solomon to verse 7. We're back with the woman. She asked Solomon, she says, Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? She has caught his eye somehow, and she wants to see him again because she loves him. She's really interested in Solomon, but there's a problem. And it's hard to see the problem if you don't understand the context of the, the culture back then. So apparently Solomon, for whatever reason, is shepherding his flocks. And where shepherds work back in that time, prostitutes would come with a veiled face to lure the shepherds in. And so the, the prostitutes would hang out around them. But the woman doesn't want to be like the veiled prostitutes when she goes to find him. She doesn't want her hanging around the shepherds to be like all the other prostitutes. She isn't, or she is saying that she will not do anything to jeopardize her faith or her character just to be with Solomon. She loves him deeply, but won't compromise her, who she is, her holiness, to be with him. It isn't just that she won't sin in order to be with him. She wants to completely avoid the appearance of sin. She's committed to holiness. And then in verse 8, Solomon says, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flocks, and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. Thankfully for the woman, Solomon is committed to holiness too. He assures her that she doesn't have to compromise her morals to attract him. He gives her a, a path to follow so that she doesn't have to associate with the prostitutes, so that she can, can be with him without compromising her holiness or her character. Skip down to chapter 2. Chapter 2, where we see another example of a commitment to holiness. Chapter 2, verse 7. This is the woman talking again. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So at the time of this verse, we've gone a little further down the timeline in their relationship. Solomon and the woman are still in the early stages of their relationship, but they're starting to really fall in love with each other and to strongly desire each other. And so the woman here says, I adjure you. It means I charge you. Whatever she's about to say next is about to be really, really serious. She says, I adjure you, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What does that mean? There's, well, there's a couple different ways to read this. Uh, but basically, the, the two ideas communicated here are, one, maybe this is more of a, a you know, PG version. Don't rush into a relationship. So many people stir up love, stir up a relationship for the sake of being in a relationship. And so that often ends up with them settling or being in a relationship that's bad, and too often that ends up in a, a lack of holiness within a relationship, compromising one's holiness for relational happiness. But second, maybe the less PG version of it, is that sex is reserved for a man and a woman within a covenant marriage relationship, and don't tarnish your holiness by doing anything otherwise. 
the woman and Solomon want to share a lot of themselves with each other, but they can't yet. They're not married. So they have to put the brakes on, and the woman is encouraging the people around her to do the same, to be committed to holiness. Interestingly, in Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 7, or the one we just read, it's repeated word for word two more times in chapter 3, verse 5, and in chapter 8, verse 4. Chapter 3 happens right before they get married, and chapter 8 happens right after their honeymoon. This couple is committed to holiness all throughout their relationship. And you know, when you became a Christian, you committed to a lifelong pursuit of holiness in your marriage to Christ. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. When the world says, have sex with whoever you want, uh, whenever you want to, Christians must choose the holiness of God's design for sex and sexuality. When the world says that, that happiness and self-fulfillment are more important than anything else, Christians must choose holiness and learn to sacrifice and become selfless. When the world, or, or even those in the church, say that holiness is being better than other people and having less mistakes than other people, Christians must choose real holiness and learn to be humble and forgiving and realize that Christ's blood is the only thing that really makes us holy. A Christian's commitment to holiness is a safeguard against sin and should be the foundation of our relationship with Christ. But what are the results of this? this? Obviously, this is a great demonstration of a commitment to love and holiness. But what does that lead to? Well, I would suggest that the commitment to love and holiness by Solomon and this woman allow God to use their lives and our lives for a much bigger purpose than had we done otherwise. Go to Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Go to chapter 8. And we're starting in verse 8. We're going to read verse 8 through 12. <clears throat> It says this, We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a, a vineyard at Baal Haman, and he let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. Go back to verse eight. What does this mean? I think this this section of Song of Solomon is the coolest part of the entire song. Some of your Bibles by verse eight may have the description others. Um, you know that that's added by translators in an attempt to help us understand the song better. Who's talking? You know who's saying this? Who's saying that? So they'll add you know the woman or the man or others, that kind of thing. And they do a really, really good job of that, I think. But quite a few commentators, and I would agree as well, think that verse 8, the others part, which remember is added by man, not by God, that part is wrong. This group of people talking in verse 8, instead of being the, the unknown others from the rest of the song, this is the woman's brothers that are talking. Because see how well that they know her in this verse. Verse 8 is, is a flashback, really, to the beginning of the song. Remember the song starts with the woman wanting to, or meeting Solomon, right? This verse is actually before that. The woman is younger. How do we know that? They talk about her undeveloped breasts. And her brothers are talking about how to protect her. They want to keep her safe from sexual predators and to keep her sexually pure 
until she is married. They want to keep her holy. Verse 9, the brothers love their sister so much that even if she is a wall, even if she has strong character and resist you know, evil on her own, resist sexual impurity on her own, they're still going to offer her help because they're her brothers. They're still going to be encouraging and offer accountability because they love her. They will protect her from men seeking to use her. And if her character is weak like a door that lets everything in, they're still going to do everything they can to protect her and help her stay pure. Verse 10, we're back in the present time. The woman assures her brothers that she was like a wall, meaning she had extremely strong character. She, on her own, resisted evil men. She resisted sexual temptation. Even though she was mature and attractive, she chose to be God's daughter and to live as such. And because of that, Solomon noticed her. Verse 11 and 12. These are the coolest verses in the entire song, in my opinion. This song, or this verse, goes all the way back the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Remember what I told you, why, why the woman was working in the vineyard? She originally thought that the brothers had made her work in the vineyard because they were angry with her and were punishing her and because she had to help you know, care for the family. And that had led to her dark skin and her insecurities. And she had worried that no one would find her attractive. But then the big reveal in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 8, the reality her brothers made her work there to protect her from men who would use her and tempt her sexually. The brothers' decision to make her work there was motivated out of love and holiness. And it just so happened that the vineyard that the brothers were working in, that they were using to make a living, was actually being leased to them. And who was leasing it? None other than King Solomon. Solomon had an agreement, apparently, with the people back then that whoever leased his vineyards were to pay him a thousand pieces of silver to use that land. And so these brothers were leasing this vineyard from Solomon. They were having their sister work in it to provide for the family. But then it came time to pay. And who was going to take the thousand pieces to King Solomon? The woman. And that is how the woman and Solomon met. That is how the woman noticed his character, his fragrance, who he was. That is how Solomon noticed her character and who she was, all because her brothers made her work in a vineyard. That would, they would have never met, that would have never happened if her brothers had not made her work in that vineyard. But because she brought the payment to Solomon, they met and fell in love. And it all started with their brothers, her brother's commitment to love and to holiness. Because of their commitment to love and holiness, God used their lives for a bigger purpose of bringing Solomon and this woman together. And because of Solomon and this woman's commitment to love and holiness in their relationship, God has used their lives for thousands of years to teach other couples what a loving, holy, and godly relationship looks like. I don't think this woman and Solomon knew that their relationship would be on display for Christians of all time. When, when they started this, this relationship. But their commitment to love and holiness has been recorded for us to learn about. Their life has been used for a bigger purpose, even after they have passed on, because of their commitment to love and holiness. When we commit to love and holiness, God uses our lives for a bigger purpose than we could ever dream of on our, on our own. 
When we commit to love and holiness in our jobs, God uses our lives to bring lost souls to him. When we commit to love and holiness in our marriages, God can use our lives to be examples for others and then to raise other generations of faithful Christians. When we commit to love and holiness as a single person, God can use our lives in ways far beyond what we could have ever imagined because of the time and the resources that we have available. When we commit to love and holiness in all areas of life, God will transform us more into the image of his son who committed to love and holiness for our sakes. Now that's just a a 50,000 foot view of the song that, that no one sings. There's a lot more to learn in the Song of Solomon. We obviously did not cut for the middle part, which is the honeymoon, which I was not going to cover tonight. So you're welcome for that. But it, it's worth studying. It's worth reading. This does not to be. This does not need to be a song that no one sings. This needs to be a song uh, that we are studying a lot, that we're learning from a lot, that we're teaching to every generation of Christians. But I hope that at the very least you've been encouraged to be committed to love, to be committed to holiness, but also to be committed to reading the parts of the Bible, studying the parts of the Bible that maybe don't get studied all that much. Thank you for being here tonight, especially if you're a visitor. I don't think I mentioned that at the beginning. But also, we're here for you as a family. If you need anything, if your commitments have not been what they should be, or if you need love, you need our encouragement, we're here for you. Or maybe you're not a Christian. Um, the way that you do that is to come to God in true faith, like we talked about this morning, by believing in Him, by loving Him and, and repenting of your sins because of that, and by obeying Him, by confessing Him, being baptized, and living faithfully. If you have a need, please come as we stand and we sing.